Rafa's going to come up here in a minute and read Psalm 23 to us. That's what I'll be preaching on. And while he does that, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures here. We're doing a sermon series on the Lord is my shepherd. And before you read the Psalm 23, which I got right there for you, I'll show you a couple of pictures. Oh. Now, how would you like to buy this house? I see a couple of hands going up. Half a million. Somebody's saying half a million. A few of you are raising your hand. What about that chair? Would you like to sit in that chair? How about it? Worship. Sit through the service and worship. Listen to me talk and talk and talk in a chair like that. Maybe, I mean, maybe they need a little bit of work. Let's take a look here. Can we go to the slide with the cars? There we go. Anybody need a car? That's a 55 Chevy. At least the grill and the front fenders to the 55 Chevy there. We're not sure about the rest. Now, this one has got all the parts, we're pretty sure. We got all the parts on this one. Needs a little work. We don't have the parts on this one. But we can, price can be lower on that one. So, needs a little work. Needs a little work. Would you want those cars? These are antiques, by the way. I mean, these are not like, you know, modern day cars. So you got a classic on your hands when you get it fixed up. A lot of unfinished business with these cars, a lot of unfinished business with that house I showed you. I hope you're not afraid of a little work as I, you know, offer you these cars in this house. Go ahead and read Psalm 23 for us while you think about unfinished business. Sure. Thank and uh, thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Morning, church. Morning. Yeah. All right. So we'll get right into it. Uh, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and sure staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will flow, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you doing it. He showed a lot of courage. We can give him a hand. He got a Facebook message this week. He got a Facebook message this week. He was brave enough to read the word of God to us, so I appreciate that. It's good to hear it read to us. As you think about that, not about damaged cars and old houses, but as you think about that, Psalm 23.3 starts out right away saying, he restores my soul, which means we have a soul. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this. You're probably saying to yourself, yeah, I mean, this is not rocket science. Like I have a soul, I get it. But it's not what we often think about. It's not where we often start conversations. We don't go up to people, hey, how are you doing? My soul needs a little restoration, you know? I mean, I'm not even sure if our neighbors and, you know, friends, family members, coworkers, like, I'm not even sure if anybody's thinking about their life as a soul. I'm not sure they'd go around, like, thinking of their identity and their existence in terms of a soul. But here David is having this moment. We don't know in Psalm 23, what was going on in David's life that he's like, the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. David doesn't give us his whole backstory at this moment of, like, what had happened up to this point. But somehow... He's saying, 
the Lord restores my soul, which can only mean that he had a soul and it was a soul that needed some restoration. Something comes up and he brings this up. He's been talking. You heard Rafa read it. He's been talking about being led beside quiet waters, beside green grass. Those are physical things, right? The sheep needs to eat the grass. The sheep needs to drink the water. But now David sort of brings this other topic up and says, my soul is being restored by God. That's not grass. That's not water. That's not physical nourishment. That's something else that David surprises us with. He's saying, I'm more than just a physical being. I'm more than just thirsty. I'm more than just hungry. I have something else in my life, unseen, invisible part of me that needs God's work. And God's doing that work. For his name's sake, God restores souls. I told you already, we don't know how David got in this situation or what's going on. But it got me thinking, well, how does a person end up needing some restoration, some change? How does a person get to this situation? Well, I'm just sort of thinking out loud as I do this, just sort of wondering how a human being even ever says, like, I need my soul restored. But number one, I thought, well, I think people in David's life should have been trustworthy and weren't. I'm thinking about Saul, who is king. David's a younger man. He's faithful to the king. He's loyal to the idea of a king. And Saul just kind of goes berserk. I don't have time to explain it all, but just Saul turns out to just be one of those people that's like not safe physically, not safe emotionally, not just Saul was a messed up guy. And the longer Saul's life went on, the more he and David just had all these problems. So I feel like Saul was one of these people, leaves David needing restoration. A second one I thought about would be David just got in a lot of physically dangerous situations. He was a shepherd, so there were bears and lions, and then later in life he's battling Goliath, and after that he's fighting all kinds of other military battles. That just comes with dangerous life situations. Just think about our police officers or firefighters, like day after day after day, soldiers day after day after day. That, that, would, that would probably leave people needing some restoration, needing some soul work after those kind of experiences. Thirdly, one that's pretty easy to get our heads around is David had a habit of sinning. You might know some other human beings who have a habit of sinning every once in a while. I think David made choices. David did things. David got himself in situations where he was sinning, and it was creating trauma. It was creating damage to his soul because of his sins. But he's able to say, God restores my soul. The Bible says he restores my soul, by the way. Not he restored past tense, but he restores my soul. It's present tense. I think it's good news. David is confident God restores my soul. So David's looking forward thinking, well, I don't know what military battle or sin or dangerous animal or untrustworthy person's next, but I have trust that God restores my soul. I think David's life goes like yours and mine. Things are going good for a while, feeling good. People are being nice. I'm, work's satisfying. And then comes something that makes our soul need some restoration. Mean words, unexpected car accidents, bad bills, whatever. Bad stuff, hard stuff, difficult things. Here comes a need for restoration. And Psalm 23.3 says, he restores my soul. Our souls regularly need restoration. They're never perfect. They're never completely restored this side of heaven. So what does God do to you, but not for you? Well, restoration. I'll unpack the for you part later, but what God does to you is restoration. It's to you. He's restoring your soul. 
I came up with several other great examples that I just really wanted to run through because I wanted us to get our head around how does God restore our souls? Like, what are we really saying when David says this and we think in our own life? What's this really mean? I wanted to give some pictures, and thankfully, Scripture has some pictures. Here's one example. In John chapter 18, there's a man named Peter. Peter spends a few years of his life walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, eating with Jesus, learning from Jesus, being changed by Jesus. And then Jesus gets arrested. Jesus gets crucified. And while that's starting to gain momentum toward the crucifixion of Christ, Peter is nearby watching Jesus tried and watching Jesus go through this kind of criminal, semi-legal process. And Peter starts denying Christ. Start saying, I don't even know who that guy is. I don't know who, you know, Jesus is getting questioned by powerful people. Peter's going, I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. He's not. And then what does God do? Jesus, of course, gets raised from the dead. Three chapters later in John 21, though, what's Jesus going to do now? Because it could be like this super awkward moment. Hey, Peter, you denied me. What was going on? I'm alive again. Oh, that's great, Jesus. Yeah, way to go. You know, no, Peter's got like a kind of a credibility issue at this point relationally. So what does Jesus do? What does God do with Peter at such a moment? Well, Jesus appears to Peter. John 21, you can read it. Jesus appears to Peter. He shows up. He starts talking to Peter. He makes a meal. He prepares a campfire. He says, Peter, sit around the fire with me. Let's talk. And Jesus asks Peter some tough questions. Peter gives some honest answers. Jesus restores their relationship. But more than that, Jesus restores their soul. By the end of that conversation, Jesus says, Peter, I'm not done with you yet. Peter, I've still got work for you to do. Peter could have thought, man, I blew it. I blew it. But Jesus says, I'm still in relationship with you. I'm still talking to you. I still care about you. And I've still got work for you to do. You're still my child. You're still my follower. You're still my person. I'm using you. I care about you. What about another example? Well, the Apostle Paul, how about him? Starts out as Saul. He's a Jewish man. He's very angry with people like Peter who are following Jesus and believe Jesus is the Messiah. So Saul goes around and says, I'm going to devote my life to persecuting people who believe Jesus is the Messiah. I'll even murder some of them. Or if I'm not the one doing the murdering, I'll hold the coats. At one point, Saul holds all the coats while a group of people are murdering Christians. Saul's holding their coat. He was close to the action or he was doing the action. How does somebody like that get their soul restored? How would the good shepherd be working that out? Well, Paul comes to faith in Christ. That's one huge way right there. Paul comes to faith in Christ. But what does God do at that point? Well, Paul doesn't get a campfire and a meal and a private conversation with Jesus to sort of hash this thing out. Paul gets a totally different experience. He's on his way. The risen Lord appears to him on the road, starts speaking to him. He goes blind. And then what God does is send a disciple to him. And that Christian is like, Lord, do you really know where you're sending me? <laughs> like, are you sure you want me to do this? But that person faithfully goes. They talk with Saul. Saul becomes part of the family of God. And he's got those people talking to him, investing in him, teaching in him, encouraging him, changing his mind, helping him learn things. It only says he was with the disciples for several days. And immediately he starts proclaiming Jesus. He starts talking about who Jesus is. How long does somebody have to be with other Christians before they start proclaiming Jesus? How long do they need to get prepared and get ready? It didn't take Paul, but several days. He's ready to go. 
God sends Paul a disciple. Paul's accepted into the church and the Lord gives him a ministry and says, go out, start talking about Jesus, start sharing what you know, start doing the work. And Paul goes and starts doing it. Let's do one last example. In the Old Testament, there's a man named Elijah. You can read 1 Kings 17, 18, 19. Elijah obeys God in these chapters. I won't go through the whole thing, but there's a challenge before Elijah. He says, I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to do what God would want done in this situation. And he does it. And he's faithful and he's obedient. And then he ends up discouraged and struggling. He doesn't feel victorious and amazing and mountaintop and so good. He ends up discouraged and struggling and feeling alone and feeling a, a lot like just not in a good place. And then what does God do there? God gives him a place to go and rest. God says, just rest. Here's some food. Here's some water. That sounds like Psalm 23. Just rest. Let me take care of you. And then God says, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not the only person who's faithful to me. I care about you. I have lots of other people. They're doing my work. They're part of my family. You're not alone. And then, just like Peter, just like Paul, God says to Elijah, I've got more work for you. I've got more things you can do. I've got purpose for you. Yeah, you're discouraged, you're struggling, you're down, but I've got more work for you. I've got something for you to go do. I hope you see the pattern here. God shows up, he speaks to people. He says, I've got more work for you to do. And you're not alone. You're in a group of people who care, who believe, who are moving forward. So let those people speak into your life. You'll get restored and you got more work to do. And he keeps the process going. Also, by the way, soul restoration comes before paths of righteousness. What Raphael read us is that he restores my soul and then he guides me into paths of righteousness. So the soul restoration comes before the paths of righteousness. David knows that God has to work something out on the inside, some of the invisible parts of him, some of the unspoken, undealt with, not exactly understood kind of things he's been through. God's got to work that stuff out. And then comes guidance and paths of righteousness. God wants to change you on the outside and on the inside. He wants you to walk in paths of righteousness. And that means you're, you're walking somewhere. You're going somewhere. There's a direction to your life. And he wants to guide you on those paths. It's part of what gives me confidence. That's why I can stand up here and say, be praying. Because Psalm 23.3 says, he guides us in paths of righteousness. So, <laughs> what, you know, what do we have to worry about? Lord, just guide us in paths of righteousness. That's what he wants to do anyway. Right? He wants to show us where to go and what to do and how to live our lives. So it's not just about me. It's your work situation. It's your family moments. It's choices about your money. It's choices about your spiritual life. Should you do this? Should you do that? What's my next step? How do, where do I go from here? What about my past? He wants to guide you in paths of righteousness. That's what he does. You just got to follow him. Let him lead you there. What does God do to you, but not for you? Restoration and redirection into paths of righteousness. I want to encourage you about this paths of righteousness because as somebody who's only been on the Cape for a few years, I guess people sort of wanted, I just, I had like an informal orientation to all these messages about living on the Cape. And some of them are, are wonderful. Like you got to go to this beach and this is the best ice cream shop, but you hang around long enough and people start to say, wow, it is really expensive to live here. Or it is really hard to live here year round. Or have you seen housing prices lately? Or have you tried to find a rental lately? Or, you know, and all of a sudden you're not talking about ice cream anymore and beaches and sunrises, which are part of the wonders. And we appreciate those things, but we kind of know like behind the scenes. And then 
for people who've grown up here, I get stories about, yeah, there's some, there's some, some hard parts of life on the Cape that people don't want to talk about. You know, some things that happen if you've lived here decades and what happens and how life goes. And, and there's, you know, tough, tough parts of living here. And that can end up leaving us, some of us, just feeling kind of weighted down, kind of burdened. But the good news of Psalm 23 is he guides us in paths of righteousness. Cape Cod is not too difficult for him. He's saying, I understand about the housing prices. I understand about this or this or that or the stuff that weighs our heart down, that stuff we remember from 20 years ago, those people that aren't here anymore, those struggles, those hardships, the, the stuff nobody tells you about a place, all those losses. But God says, I'll guide you in paths of righteousness. We have a God who makes a way where there is no way. He guides us in paths of righteousness. So I don't know where the paths are on the Cape, but he's not hindered through the situation and the circumstances. He's like, I got this. I will guide you in paths of righteousness. I will make paths of righteousness if I must. I will show you what to do with all those complex, hard situations about finances and people and stuff and cultural changes and lost relationships and hardships. He can make a way. He guides into paths of righteousness. In my family, we used to have an Alexa, one of those Amazon gadgets. And at first, it was like a cool way just to like quickly get music. And we would, we would like use it to like quickly have music that we could have in the background at dinner. Then our children learned how to make it work. And it was not so entertaining anymore. And then they learned like they could ask for whatever they wanted. And they, you know, functionally, they would think that they're getting it. And then we would leave it unplugged for long periods of time. And they'd quit talking to it. But when we did, and, and I just, I really, to be honest, I just had very mixed feelings about it. And what really pushed me over the edge is when we would have it plugged in. And at like 2.17 in the afternoon on a Thursday, the robot would speak up and say, it looks like it's time to buy more pizza crusts, peanut butter, and, you know, paper plates. And I'm sitting there like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I didn't turn this on. And then it says, would you like to make that order right now? No. No, I don't know what, no, I, we, don't, we don't just spontaneously buy peanut butter on Thursdays. Like, I'm at work right now. Like, if you're so smart, like, leave me alone. You know, I'm trying to get things done in real world. When it's time to buy peanut butter, like, we'll figure that out. But I don't want some robot interjecting in my life. And I especially didn't want my kids to be going, yeah, pizza, yeah. You know, and then I'm, right? This is not a good situation. This is annoying to me. That's convenient, but it's misleading. Now, I use YouTube as another example. I think YouTube is great. I listen to music on it. I listen to like podcasts and radio shows, things like that. I listen to YouTube. I think it's great for listening. But here's what happens with the Alexa, with the YouTube, with Netflix, which I also watch. They start paying attention to my life and trying to make decisions for me. And that leads to this, this convenience sometimes but it also leads to this idea that, you know, well, YouTube is really BenTube. <laughs> YouTube's really BenTube because if I'll let that know what my watching history was and if I'll start clicking thumbs up and likes and saving this and sharing that, all of that's getting paid attention to. And pretty soon YouTube is really BenTube because all I got to do is open the app and I'm getting what I want. And the Netflix tries to do the same thing. The last time I watched it, it's telling me, well, this movie is only 77% likely to be what you'd want, but this movie is 94% likely to be what you want. It's, it's, it's Benflix. It's BenTube. It's my Alexa telling me it's time for pizza crusts and peanut butter, right? 
but it's not about me. It's not about me. Shopping's fine, music's fine, watching movies fine, but it's not about me. And these things turn into, it's, it's just you. What do you want? What do you think? What do you feel? What would you need next? Can we go ahead and order that for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's time for you to get more of that. No, no, it's not. It's time for a good shepherd. It's time for a good shepherd who restores my soul, who directs me in paths of righteousness. God's restoration, his redirection, it's to you, but it's not for you. It's not Ben Tube. It's not Ben Flicks. I'm not going to put your name in there because I love you too much, but I'll just, you know, it's not about you. It's not for you. It's for him. It's for his namesake. It's for the glory of God. And I know this is a little unexpected, a little uncomfortable, kind of pushes our button a little bit. But your restoration and redirection is to you. He restores your soul. He guides you in paths of righteousness, but it's not about you. It's so that he gets praised. It's so that he gets recognized. It's so that the world says, well, there is a God. There is something more than just a bunch of people. As amazing as some of the work that they do is, it's bigger than all of us. There is a God and he's worthy of praise. His work, this work, it magnifies him. It exalts him. It lifts him up. There's a creator. There's a carer. There's a sustainer. There's a shepherd. Someone's watching over things because they see the difference in human lives. And they, don't, they might say, well, I want that life instead. Or they might not. But they go, that life is definitely different. And that's the moment where it says, even the angels, even the unseen beings plus us are going, it's him. It's not me. It's him. It's not me. I don't want you to be afraid or ashamed. God is gentle. God is merciful. But I do want you to be alert. It's something to guard our heart from because the Alexa is going to pop on and the YouTube and the Netflix and all the rest are going to be saying, you, 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 you. And he's going to go, me, 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 mine, 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 my glory, my glory, my, my praise, my worship. God is a good shepherd that we desperately need. I'll show you here. Skip ahead a little bit. You'll remember. See if we can get one more to come up here. He's given us such a sunshiny day. There we go. Now, what difference does a good shepherd make? You saw this ugly house, of course, but what difference does a good shepherd make? We talk about restoring souls. We talk about redirection. What difference does a good shepherd make? Is that the way the house is going to stay forever? The Lord is the shepherd, so what difference does he make? In just a moment, we'll see the work that he's capable of doing. It's a little bit of a change, right? It's a little bit of a change. You had to wait, a, you had to wait 10 seconds to see it. If that had been one house to the other real house, it would have been like 10 years. YouTube would, you know, give you like that feed where it's like, oh, the best part's the most watched section, and you just skip ahead. We had to wait 10 seconds. This is what the good shepherd does. He turns run-down, ramshackle things that are just worth throwing a match on and says, let me build a mansion. Let me build a mansion. I'd live in that house. Now, some of you earlier got to see that 55 Chevy. It was, you might remember it was the thing that didn't have headlights. It was like a rectangle-shaped grill. I'll see if I can get that back up here. But that 55 Chevy, there it is. Look at that beautiful car. Think of all the potential. You could do so much with that, right? Some of you, how many of you are dreamers? One, two. All right, we got some people. So there's a few of at least who are like, yeah, you could do something with that. 
This, this could happen. Lord is my shepherd. He restores souls, redirects into paths of righteousness. That's a 55 Chevy. Now, how many of you would take that 55 Chevy? Because those are worth probably like 100 grand, by the way. That other one in the weeds, Bill Dutton's willing. So you didn't want to do the work, Bill, on the first one? You didn't want to restore that second one? No, me either. Me either. I, I value sleep too much. But that right there, that is somebody's finished work right there. It's not the exact same car, but that is a car that's been done. That's what God can do in you. That's what God can do to you. It's not for you, but it's in you. It's to you. He restores souls. He guides in paths of righteousness no matter where you are. Last week, when we were having that other meeting with all that other conversation going on, a real nugget came out. Somebody said, we could use a little bit of response time at the end of worship. We could use a little bit of a space to just sit with the Lord, talk with Him, pray to Him. And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea for us, just to have a little bit of time. So we're going to start doing that after the sermons each week. And so I'm going to help you get a sense for it. It's, you know, some people call it, like last week when people were talking about it, they are like, do we call it an altar call? Do we call it a response time? Do we mean people? We mean creating space for you to have a conversation with the Lord. So I'm going to be up here. You might be out there. You might not. You can come pray over here next to the communion vases that Eric and Tammy gave us before they left. You can sit, stand. It's a space for you to be with the Lord and to be thinking about, this is what I heard while we were singing songs. This is what I thought about during communion. This is the restoration I need in my soul. This is a time to talk to God saying, direct me in paths of righteousness. <laughs> some of you could use some paths of righteousness right about now. Some of you could use some restoring of soul. And this can happen. It might be on your mind. We have a forgiving God. We have a gentle God. We have a merciful God. He's ready to meet with you here. He's ready to, you can confess sin to him. You can ask him about all these things. As you begin getting ready for that time, Angela and Stephanie will come up and play some songs for us, some music for us while we do that for a few minutes, just three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And it's just a time to just be with him as they play. You can pray, you can sing, you can worship as you please. But I just want to remind you that something about sheep and part of the reason why David chose this image of sheep is they can end up on their back. A sheep can fall over upside down, feet up in the air, stuck out up in the air, and they're stuck at that point. The sheep cannot roll itself over. And it doesn't, like, you know, some of us lay on our back for hours at a time. We call that sleeping. And we do great. A sheep does not do great laying on its back for hours at a time. And these sheep get into a problem, which is that other sheep will not fix that situation. And if a sheep lays on its back for hours, it will eventually lose the ability to breathe. It will take in less and less oxygen, and we all know that that's not good for a sheep, right? Not good for anybody. And we can sleep like that, and that's good for us, but these sheep are in this situation that's bad for them. And other sheep can bleat at them and go, bah, bah, and, you know, and run around and get all agitated and stressed out. But the whole time, that sheep's just laying on its back, getting worse and worse and worse. The only thing that helps is the shepherd comes along and puts the sheep back on its feet. He turns the sheep right side up. He restores the sheep. He guides the sheep in paths of righteousness. And it begins by saying, I got to turn you over. And maybe just for you, it's something where you're just like, I could use the Lord to turn me over. Maybe not your whole life. Maybe it is your whole life. Like maybe you are like, I need my whole life turned upside down. But you might just say, Lord, there was this moment when I was 14. There was this moment when I was 25. There was this moment yesterday. Could you just turn me back over again? This is a chance for us as a church while Stephanie and Angela play.
to just do that to do that sense for them. So over the next few minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, if you need to get your kids, we understand. If you need to go, we understand. It's a time, though, where I wanted to create the space for you just to be with him. So I'm going to pray as that begins, and we'll have a few minutes of time with the Lord. And then I'll come up again and close us in prayer. And thank you for joining us in worship and being part of this. Lord, we are grateful to continue to get to move toward you. And we figure out how to do it in new ways. We have the same life we've had for years and years, and yet we start looking for you. And and the beauty of our family conversations is that ideas come up that help us spend more time with you and help us respond to you and help us deepen our faith in you. And we thank you for Stephanie and Angela and many others helping us be able to do this, just to sit with you for a few minutes. And we ask you to meet with us where we are, be present to us, help us speak to you and speak to one another. It's in your name we pray.